0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today's subject comes from a suggestion from a listener, so thank you for that. We're going to explore the surgeon R. Adams Cowley and learn about his impact on the treatment of trauma patients. He's often credited with giving us the terms a momentary pause in the act of death to describe shock and the golden hour to describe the treatment of it. Now, the truth is a bit more complicated, and we'll get into that, but he definitely should be credited with playing a large role in modernizing the approach to trauma care. He's an interesting character to say the least, so let's get to it in this episode of Legends of Surgery. R. Adams Cowley was born in Layton, Utah on July 25th, 1917. His father was a pharmacist and his mother a self-taught painter. Along with his five siblings, Cowley was raised on a ranch and was known for being a bit rebellious in his youth and had a reputation for breaking wild mustangs. <laughs> Now, before we get further into his early years, I want to tell you what may be my favorite odd tidbit I learned while researching this episode. Now, his name is R. Adams Cowley, not R. Adams Cowley. The R does not stand for anything, or at least not really. Let me explain. One of his grandfathers, Utah State Senator Rufus Adams, wanted a namesake grandson. Cowley's mother, who was the senator's daughter, reluctantly agreed and no source expands on why there was reluctance. When the moment came to write her infant son's name on the birth certificate, she started to write Rufus, but stopped after the first letter and never finished. So his official first name is simply the letter R. And later in life, he insisted that it be written without a period after it. As we'll get to, an important building is named after him. I'm curious if they were sure to admit the period on the building signs. Okay, so Callie grew up in Utah and initially was a bit of a troublemaker, as mentioned earlier. He was a problem student, getting suspended five times. Cowley was expelled from college and found himself earning $37 a week cleaning spittoons, trundling cement, and wrestling tires. At some point, he decided to find a better way to make a living and return to college. By 1940, Cowley had graduated from the University of Utah and went to medical school at the University of Maryland, graduating in 1944. Now one funny story I came across was that Cowley quit medical school due to homesickness, but the dean of the medical school raced to the bus station, found him, and offered to let him live in his home if Cowley returned to his studies. I guess he must have seen something in the young student. Upon completion of medical school, Cowley spent two years of general surgery residency at the University of Maryland. While in medical school, he had taken advantage of the Army students' training program, which quote, paid for everything, the tuition and the clothes I wore, end quote. So in 1946, Cowley interrupted his studies to serve in the US Army in post-war Europe. Working in the Army field hospitals, he found himself tending to a continuous stream of battered people who'd been injured when bombed out buildings collapsed or forgotten ordnance exploded on abandoned battlefields. While working under these conditions, Cowley realized that speed was essential. His reputation in the operating theaters in the field hospitals led to promotion to chief surgeon and later a transfer to the Allgemeines Krakenhaus in Vienna, Austria where some of Europe's best surgeons operated. Quote, These men, one swipe of the knife and the belly was open. Not like us, going through layers at a time and stopping the bleeding as we go. They'd slap on towels, do it barehanded. Quick as they would get down to the guts, they'd put on a pair of cotton gloves so that they could hold the bowel without slipping and sliding. They'd do their stuff and they were finished. They were so good and so clever that what would take three hours in America would be over in 40 minutes. End quote. Those are Cowley's words. By the way, the Algemein Krakenhaus, if I'm saying that correctly, translates to the Vienna General Hospital, and longtime listeners might recognize this as the hospital where Sammelweis worked out the connection between hand hygiene and childbed fever. That's way back in Podcast 3. So at the end of his service, Cowley returned to the U.S., finished his general surgery residency at Maryland, and then completed a cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at the University of Michigan. At this point, he returned to the University of Maryland and began working as a cardiothoracic surgeon. Although we're covering his work in the field of trauma, it's worth mentioning some of his accomplishments in cardiothoracic surgery. Cowley was known as being a pioneer in open heart surgery before the heart-lung machine was widely used. See podcast 63. He also invented a surgical clamp that bears his name, Now, although I couldn't find this, so if any listeners out there know more about it, please send me a tweet or email and he invented a prototype pacemaker that was used by U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Callie was professor of thoracic and cardiovascular surgery at the University of Maryland and the University of Pennsylvania, and was a founding member of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. But it was his pioneering work in emergency medicine and treatment of shock trauma that led to him being known as the father of trauma medicine. And that's what we're going to talk about today, so let's get to it. And probably influenced by his experience in the operating theaters after World War II, Cowley believed that the way civilian trauma patients were cared for was substandard and antiquated, and he set out to make it his life's work to improve this. And as we'll see, he did. Cowley insisted for years that the traditional hospital emergency room was not the proper place for treating potentially fatal injuries, which ruffled some feathers in medical services. Now, up to this point, trauma was relegated to being a disease managed by house staff with little or no supervision, and was the so-called neglected orphan of organized medicine. Quote, there is no way for medical people to take care of the critically ill in the hospital today, end quote, he told a committee of the American College of Surgeons at a conference at Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1956, adding that, quote, the emergency patient really interferes with the hospital's day. End quote. Now, shortly thereafter, the United States first trauma center at the University of Maryland opened in 1958 after the U.S. Army awarded Cowley $100,000 to study shock in people, the first award of its kind in the U.S. At first, this ward consisted of just two beds and later expanded to four. But By 1960, staff were trained and equipment was in place. Patients began to trickle in, usually referred by other physicians, but they came in dying. In fact, many people called the four-bed unit the death lab, as it intensively monitored and treated patients who were considered unsalvageable. But this created the opportunity to study and understand the pathophysiology of shock and improve survival in trauma, and slowly but surely Cowley and his team made gains in survival. The progress made in improving outcomes led Cowley to the conclusion that trauma was a disease in its own right, and as a disease, its management required an integrated, dedicated, multidisciplinary approach that cut across traditional specialty boundaries. This was the beginning of the formation of a new discipline, traumatology. Like all changes in medicine, as we've seen time and again in this podcast, there is significant resistance. Cowley espoused unpopular opinions, for example, that pre-hospital care was beyond the expertise of physicians and required special training, special personnel, and special equipment. The use of ill-equipped and staffed vehicles owned by funeral parlors as the major source of ambulances was unacceptable. Now, Central to this new concept was the specially trained and dedicated trauma nurse, a new type of professional. Fortunately, Dr. Cowley had Elizabeth Scanlon-Trump, the first trauma nurse, who was a full partner of Cowley in getting the shock trauma unit started. Now, They were both strong personalities. She once said about Cowley, quote, the people he likes and respects the most, he'll have these yelling matches with. People he didn't really respect, he rarely raises his voice or reprimands. End quote. And after one such incident, Mrs. Trump left her office, and when she returned, she found a gift from Cowley hanging on her wall, which read, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil from the meanest son of a bitch in the valley. End quote. So, how do they actually build a trauma center? In so 1966, Cowley was a member of the committee of the National Research Council that wrote a landmark document which was published by the National Academy of Sciences entitled, quote, Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society, end quote. Now By 1968, they had negotiated to have patients brought in by military helicopter to get patients to the shock trauma unit more quickly, possibly inspired by the use of helicopter evacuations in the Korean War. After much discussion, With the Maryland State Police, the first medevac transport occurred in 1969 after the opening of a five-story, 32-bed center for the study of trauma. The center became a leader in the use of helicopters for medical evacuations of civilians. So let's take a quick pause to examine the history of the use of helicopters for medical transport. You may remember that the first organized ambulance corps was in Napoleon's Grand Army, organized by the French surgeon Larré, see Podcast 47. By World War I, the French pioneered the use of airplanes to transplant the wounded from the battlefield with the first incidents occurring during the Serbian retreat in 1915 when 12 casualties were transferred aboard unmodified service aircraft. By the 1920s, planes were used to respond to civilian disasters which included transporting the wounded. But it wasn't until World War II when air ambulances really took off, pun intended. Helicopters were first used to move Injured soldiers near the end of the war. On April 23rd and 24th of 1944, near Malu, Burma, Lieutenant Carter Harmon made the first military helicopter medical evacuation. Four Allied soldiers, trapped behind enemy lines after their plane crashed, were carried out of the jungle, which took four separate flights over two days. By the Korean War, the helicopter was used to fly directly to the front lines and evacuate the wounded. Now, many of you may remember the TV show M.A.S.H., which showcased the Bell H-13 helicopter, which was the primary medevac aircraft in Korea, making the majority of the 20,000 transfers. The Vietnam War was sometimes called the Helicopter War, with the Huey helicopter becoming the workhorse of medical evacuation. But it wasn't until that 1966 publication, Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society, that the idea of organized civilian aeromedical evacuation by helicopter was endorsed. And as we saw... Cowley was on the forefront of making it happen. But these advances weren't enough. By 1970, Cowley had expanded his dream, envisioning a statewide system of care funded by the state of Maryland. And he got an ally in Maryland Governor Marvin Mandel, who became interested when a close friend was severely injured in a car crash. By executive order of Mandel in 1973, the Maryland Institute for Emergency Medicine Services Systems, or M-I-E-M-S-S, and I don't know if people call it memes or not, was created, the first statewide emergency medical system in the U.S., out of the Center for the Study of Trauma. Now, in addition, the Division of Emergency Medical Services was created, and Cowley was appointed director. He eventually organized a statewide system incorporating 50 hospitals, 10 trauma centers, 450 ambulances, and a fleet of evacuation helicopters. Maryland's system became an international model for emergency medicine. That system was based on the voluntary cooperation of physicians, nurses, hospital administrators, ambulance services, fire departments, and law enforcement, as well as government officials and agency personnel. Now in 1986, the US Congress established the National Study Center for Trauma and Emergency Medical Systems in Baltimore, which was signed into law by then President Ronald Reagan. And just three years later, in 1989, the $44 million, eight-story, 138-bed Shock Trauma Center at the University of Maryland Medical Center Complex in downtown Baltimore opened. This was named after Cowley, the culmination of a life dedicated to improving the care of trauma patients. The center not just provides care, but also focuses on teaching, research, and advocacy for trauma prevention. At the time it opened, it was considered the most technically advanced life saving facility in the world. So let's talk a little about Cowley's legacy. As he described it, in the old days, quote, they'd scrape you off the highway, put you in a hearse, and take you to the closest hospital, end quote, and it quote, wouldn't be ready for you. End quote. He believed that every critically ill or injured person had the right to the best medical care according to the state of the art and not according to location, severity of injury, or ability to pay. His vision has been described as the right people and the right equipment, taking care of the right patients at the right time. Cowley has been widely credited with reducing the death rate among Maryland's most critically injured patients from about 60% to fewer than 10%, and the accident survival rate in Maryland was two and a half times better than the national average according to a 1986 study but he was a tireless advocate that was not one to rest on his laurels. At the opening of the center, he said, quote, we've done a hell of a job, but we've not done enough. People are dying needlessly, end quote. Let's now take a look at some of the concepts that Cowley introduced that we take for granted now, but were considered revolutionary at the time. Let's start with his philosophy in his own words, quote, our whole goal is to keep the patient alive. If you stop to diagnose half of your patients are dead. We treat before diagnosing. That's just the opposite of what you're taught in medical school, End quote. The philosophy behind that is about treating the patient right away, and that there is a critical window of opportunity to salvage trauma patients. This is referred to as the golden hour, which is a period of 60 minutes or less following injury when immediate definitive care is crucial to trauma patient survival. Cowley is often credited with being the creator of the golden hour concept. In his words, quote, There is a golden hour between life and death. If you are critically injured, you have less than 60 minutes to survive. You might not die right then. It may be three days or two weeks later. But something has happened in your body that is irreparable, end quote. Now, interestingly, Cowley actually never claimed to have come up with the term golden hour, And it was in use by military surgeons around world war ii which may be where he first came across it and the term golden hour dates back to at least the 18th century poets such as keats burns and tennyson referring to the sense of a fleeting opportunity and no doubt this is where the term was borrowed from okay let's take a quick detour robert burns considered the national poet of scotland wrote the words to old lang syne but not the music a fun little fact you can share at your next New Year's Eve party. But the poem we're interested in here is one called "Highland Mary," written in 1792. Here's the relevant passage quote: "The golden hours on Angel wings flew o'er me and my dearie. For dear to me as light and life was my sweet Highland Mary." End quote: He died at the age of just 37, possibly due to rheumatic heart disease. And his life and works are celebrated around the world each year on Robbie Burns Day, which is on his birthday. Okay, let's move on. So the golden hour was used in surgery as far back as the American Civil War, with the following quote attributed to Isaac F. Galoup, a surgeon in the 17th Regiment of Massachusetts Volunteers, reporting on battlefield amputations. Quote, the golden opportunity for the operation is immediately upon the reception of the injury. End quote. And there are plenty of other examples in the literature of surgeons using similar terms, including the golden hour. But Cowley should be given credit for effectively using the image of a golden hour to advocate for better emergency care of injured patients. So we've established that the first hour or so following trauma is important to begin treatment. But why is that? Well, there's another concept in understanding shock that again Cowley is credited for, but as we'll see, he was continuing and adding to a concept that was already understood. Now, the state of shock, and I mean the medical idea of shock, not the emotional state, has been called a momentary pause in the act of death. The idea here is that there is a physiological process, shock, that temporarily preserves function, but the patient will inevitably proceed to die if not treated quickly, hence the importance of the golden hour. Quick aside, the origin of the word shock likely derives from the French choc, C-H-L-C, which was originally used to describe quote, an encounter between two charging hostile forces, jousters, etc., end quote. Now, this is my own pondering, but I wonder if there's a connection to the term shock troops. Well, anyways, the first usage in the English literature has been traced back to 1743 in a translation of a French treatise on gunshot wounds by Henri-François Ledrin, a French surgeon. So this momentary pause line is also credited to Cowley, but he never claimed it as his own either. In fact, the concept of shock as a temporary pause experienced by dying trauma patients dates back to a Prussian army surgeon named Gustav H. Groningen from a monograph he wrote in 1885. Now, one of the articles I read for this podcast had a translation of the monograph, but I'll just read to you the final sentence as it's a bit poetic. Quote, Is it not as if the departing life of a conscious dying person made a brief pause and held the remaining diminished functions stationary for a moment? End quote. The concept was even reiterated by George Kreil in a chapter on shock he wrote in 1906 and by Alfred Blaylock in a review of historical concepts of shock in a 1934 publication using the phrase, quote, this momentary pause in the act of death, end quote. Interestingly, Blaylock was surgeon-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore and the most prominent shock researcher in the U.S. when Cowley was a medical student and trainee in the same city. But again, Cowley should be credited with using the momentary pause to dramatize the critical situation of seriously injured patients in shock as an effective metaphor. And before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to share a few of the anecdotes I read about Cowley that seemed quirky, but highlight the single-minded dedication he had to his craft. He lived in a small apartment covered with books, some of which he kept inside the stove, likely because of a lack of shelf space. Cowley was known for working 16-hour days, seven days a week, sometimes sleeping on hospital x-ray tables. That is, until one Christmas, when the University of Maryland Carpenters presented him with an eight-foot, orange, handmade bench so that he would stop. Cowley refused to take vacation for nearly 50 years so that his staff could be home with their families over the holidays. R. Adams Cowley died suddenly at home on October 27th of 1991 at the age of 74 from heart failure. His second wife, Roberta Schwartz Cowley, had just given birth to his son, R. Adam Cowley II, three weeks before his death. Because of his service as a first lieutenant after World War II, Cowley was buried in Arlington National Cemetery, a United States military cemetery in the state of Virginia across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. On July 23, 2013, Cowley posthumously received the congressional gold medal in recognition of, quote, his lifelong commitment to the advancement of trauma care, end quote. So let's end on the words of his friend, colleague, and co-founder of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, who described Cowley this way. He was, quote, dedicated, persistent, single-minded, politically astute, sometimes abrasive, and a remarkable organizer, a valiant, visionary warrior, end quote that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. As you recall, we recently covered Trendelenburg, partly because of his namesake position for patients in the operating room. Well, next time, we'll cover another well-known position in surgery, lithotomy. This name comes from the ancient practice of removing bladder stones, which we will cover the history of that procedure. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there follow me on twitter at surgery legends like us on facebook at legends of surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com i'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes and as always thanks for listening